Welcome back, everybody. I'm Natalia. And I'm Ron. And this is Till Death Do Us Part. This week, Ron and I watched another episode of Dateline NBC. This week's episode was Far From Spider Lake. And I'm going to tell you the story of the unsolved murder of Jan Cruz. The Cruz family was living an idyllic life in Brewster, Minnesota. Brewster is tiny. There's less than 500 people. That's pretty small. Jan and Chris Cruz appeared happily married. They were parents to two children, 15-year-old Bailey and 20-year-old Isaac. They had been married for 20 years. Jan was an accountant and Chris owned his own carpentry business. Together, they had a dream of owning a lakeside resort. Jan and Chris had their eye on a resort at Spider Lake in northern Minnesota. But this happy-looking family was harboring some dark secrets. For one, the couple could not afford this lakeside resort, even if they sold everything, their house, the carpentry business, they would still be $150,000 short. Jan and Chris may have argued over the decision, although how intensely or how frequently we'll never know. Another less than perfect secret in the Cruz family was that 15-year-old Bailey was having an intense friendship with a 19-year-old named Jeremy Majerus. Her parents strongly opposed the relationship, but Bailey was sneaking Jeremy into her room unbeknownst to her parents. On the night of August 19th, 2015, Jan Cruz was fatally shot to death while in her bed. Her husband, Chris, was unharmed. Their daughter, Bailey, says the shots woke her up between 2.30 and 2.40. Chris stated that he ran to check on his daughter and then called 911. The back door was open and one window was broken downstairs. Nothing was stolen from the home. Two shotgun shells were found outside the bedroom door. One shot had killed 40-year-old Jan. The other shot missed and went through the headboard and even through the wall of the house. There were no footprints leading into or out of the house. This definitely was not a robbery gone wrong. There are some peculiar facts to this case. Can I add, the fact that there's no footprints doesn't mean anything. There was just nothing indicative of somebody had broken into the house other than the entrance that the 19-year-olds used was a basement window, and that window was broken and left open. But the fact that they didn't find footprints, that doesn't mean anything. The police stated that it had heavily rained the night before. And the ground was muddy. Days before. In the days leading up to the murder, it had heavily rained and the ground was muddy. And although there was a leaf blown in and a couple of streaks of dirt, no muddy footprints. Okay. We never find out if the window was broken outward or inward, by the way. Anyway. Here are some peculiar facts in the case. Number one, the husband, Chris, had no blood on his hands and barely any on his clothes. 
yet he claimed to have touched his wife laying her down after she was shot and claims to have been in bed with her when she was shot. She was bleeding profusely. We watched the crime scene video. She was shot through the chest. She was shot through the chest and there was blood all over that bed and those pillows. Number two, Bailey told Jeremy, her boyfriend, not boyfriend, that her parents were fighting all the time about purchasing the resort. Although she later told police that her parents hardly argued. So we have conflicting reports about whether or not their marriage was in turbulence. Hold on, hold on, hold on. In all fairness, she's a 15-year-old, so her perspective might be different. And second of all, she was hearing impaired. And so while she might have thought she heard something, she really doesn't know. Okay, but in text to her friend Jeremy, she had stated that she heard them yelling so loudly that she had to put on earphones and turn the music up. But then she told police a different story was that her parents never argued. But who knows if she was telling Jeremy the truth? I'm not saying whether or not her accounts are accurate or inaccurate. I'm simply stating the facts, which is that one minute she's telling her friend her parents argue all the time. And when she talked to the police, she said, no, my parents never fought. Just we don't know what's the truth. No, we don't know what's the truth. Number three. The husband, Chris, adamantly claimed that he only heard one shot, even though there were two definitive shotgun shells. Shells. Number four. Wait, wait. He was sleeping. He woke up to, he says, is the sound of the gunshot. He didn't say that. He said that he only heard one shot. He assumes that it was the first shot that woke him up. But he never says, the shot woke me up in none of the video we watched. And finally, at 2.48, Bailey texted Jeremy one word, his name. She texted Jeremy with three exclamation points and never followed up that text. So now that we know what the story is, um, we can talk about what you think and I think actually happened. Because the fact is that although the husband, Chris, was on trial for murder of his wife, he was acquitted. He walked away and the jury found him not guilty. This was a 2015 case about five years ago. The trial took three and a half years before the case actually was presented to trial. And it actually went to trial because he, the Chris, reopened the case by saying he found love letters written by Jeremy to her daughter. He tried to pin it on the friend, Jeremy, stating that Jeremy perhaps tried to kill the parents so that they wouldn't buy the resort and Bailey would not have to move away. Even though Bailey stated that her parents had already said she could live with the grandparents to finish out high school. So very weak motive. No case was ever brought against Jeremy. Jeremy was cleared by the police. And there's a couple of other things that the police found that incriminated Chris. We have, first of all, the 12 gauge shotgun was found in Chris's carpentry shop. So there's the murder weapon. 
No fingerprints to link anybody, but that's where it was. Also, the bedding and pillows were filled with blood and bullet fragments, but there was nothing on Chris. And wait, wait. in all fairness, the pictures we saw where the bed and the pillows were covered with blood were hours after the actual murder, right? But they were filled with blood. Of course, she continued to bleed. It doesn't mean she was bleeding that profusely in the initial incident. She was shot. shot in the chest. I got it. Where do you think she, you think she had a delayed reaction? No, but I think the blood continued to flow, which soaked the bed and the pillow. And when they turned her over to see the wound on the back, more blood came out. You have to understand. The he had zero blood on his hands. He admitted that he did not attempt CPR. That's a problem. He did not attempt to staunch the bleeding. That's another problem. He could have tried to keep her alive. That's another problem. There's many problems right there. I can tell you right now, a shotgun blast to the chest, you're going to have blood splattered all over the damn place. And if you're in bed laying next to your wife, you should have that blood on your body and your face. But he had none of that and no bullet fragments, even though there were bullet fragments in the pillows. So you can argue that she didn't bleed so profusely until after the crime scene was cleaned up. That's the the add up of all the blood. But that still doesn't explain why he didn't have any fragments or blood on him. You know what I, I thought was interesting about the show is it never mentioned that the blood was on the blanket or there was no blood on the blanket. Because if he was under a blanket, there's good reason why he didn't get covered with bullets, bullet fragments or blood. You're saying that the blanket would have protected him from the bullet that went through the headboard and through the wall of the house? It could have protected him from the fragments. It certainly would have protected him from the blood. It would not have protected him from bullet fragments. It's a 12-gauge shotgun. It's little pellets. So, yes. All right. We also... We have a different perspective on the guilt uh, of Chris here, I think. Oh, hold on, hold on. Just one more little tidbit. All right. Jan's life insurance happened to pay out Exactly $150,000, which is exactly what was needed to buy the resort. That's the amount of money that was missing. And I don't find that relevant either. Um, so $150,000 policy is probably the standard one you get from AAA. I would think most people have that same exact policy. I disagree. I think that we've heard plenty of cases, and I've certainly heard plen plenty of cases in listening to all my murder podcasts that uh, people get paid out all sorts of different amounts. I I would not say I've heard 150 grand as a standard in any cases that I've listened to. I have $150,000 policy too, by the way. Is that it? Yeah, that's what came with AAA. So it's not worth it for me to kill you. Well, I have a second policy. Okay. So here's what I think happened. I don't think Chris is guilty of killing his wife. I think, and this is allegedly speculation, completely my opinion with no basis other than I listen to a lot of murder podcasts. I think the daughter did it. I think Bailey was very upset at the idea that she was going to have to leave her boyfriend. So she tried to kill her parents. And that's why Chris's story is not lining up because he's protecting his daughter. That's why he doesn't have the blood and the bullet fragments is because he saw his daughter in the doorway. 
And maybe words were said, maybe words were not. We'll never know. But Jan was sitting up when she was shot. So something woke her up. We know this from the forensics. She was sitting up when she was shot and she had her arm stretched out ahead of her in a defensive stance. So I think she was shot through her hand and the chest. Yes. The bullet grazed her hand and went into her chest. So I think the daughter did it and he's protecting her, which is why he failed his polygraph, which is why the boyfriend failed the polygraph, which neither of those polygraphs were brought up in court, but they both showed deception. I think they're both protecting her. And I think that's why to this day, his story just makes zero sense. There's nobody else who wanted to kill this woman. She was an upstanding citizen. She had no problems at her job. We don't really know that. As far as we know. Like I said, this is all speculation. So I personally think, oh, and Bailey is now uh, together, actually together, boyfriend, girlfriend, with Jeremy and has been since they first started their friendship. They are still together, which could make for some pretty awkward family gatherings, if you ask me. But that's who I think did it. What do you think? I was pretty sure that she was the shooter. Yeah, you too? I'll be honest. I thought that the <laughs> daughter did it because she didn't want to move and she was afraid of the parents alienating Jeremy. I think Jeremy was certainly in on it, which is why she texted Jeremy right after it happened. Like, Jeremy, we just did it. And I think the father was completely full of shit because he protected his daughter. And so all his cockamamie stories... You know, one plus one plus one didn't add up to anything because he didn't make sense. Uh, the daughter changed her story several times. Yeah. It didn't make sense. Jeremy changed his story yeah, several every, times. Yeah, everybody changed their it story. It didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so, frankly, I really thought that the, the daughter did it and the father was in, a fun, was in this tough position. Do you tell the police that your daughter just shot your wife? Uh, and then you'll end up losing not only your wife, you lose your daughter too. And I think that's a very difficult situation to be in. Uh, I thought the prosecutor was completely out of control. I don't think so. I think the prosecutor seemed pretty level-headed. It didn't seem to have, uh, you know, a personal stake in this either way. Seemed very calm when he was speaking to the camera. Well, that's also calm a year and a, a year and a, a Well, year years, later, right? years later, this is, yes, I, and I understand that. But I don't think that the state gave... The husband, Chris, an especially hard time. I think when the, after the shooting, the husband, Chris, took that gun, put it back in his shop as quick as he could to yep. protect his daughter. Yep. Uh, and I think the real fight was between the, the two women in the house. I'm surprised that we both came to that conclusion. But before we recorded this, after we watched that episode, I specifically told Ron that we were not to tell each other who we thought did it that we were to keep our notes to ourselves. So I'm just surprised that we both thought the daughter well, is guilty. The daughter did it with the aid of the boyfriend. Oh, I don't think the boyfriend was... why they're still together. I think the boyfriend knew what she wanted to do, but I don't think he was there that night. No, I think it was her job to do it. He was supposed to help. By saying that and the I'm parents sure. were fighting all the time and mentioning all those texts. Absolutely. 
Jeremy was the one who mentioned that the parents were fighting a lot, that the parents had mentioned divorce, and that's that was all just hearsay. But I do think that that was something he said just to help it along, this idea that the dad did it. He also admitted to going to the house around 2.30 in the morning, but then turned around when he saw the police at the house. Yeah, he said he the, the blockade kept him out, but that after he received the 249 text... Not a blockade. He said that it was a, he saw a enormous a lot of police cars. Yeah, police and ambulance. He spoke all over his dad and his father, Jeremy's father, told him not stay to out be of it. Involved, to stay out of it. Yeah. And then the father lied and said Jeremy never left the house that night. Yeah, Jeremy's father claimed that he and Jeremy were up watching TV at two forty-five in the morning, but Jeremy later admitted to leaving the house and trying to drive to the Cruz's house. So. There's definitely a lot of deception going on. There's a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, but I guess we're both on the same page that the daughter fucking killed her mom. Treat the kids nicer. What do you do <laughs> if your child commits a heinous crime? Do you protect them or do you turn them in? Do you see justice done or do you try to save what you have left? You save what you have left. Wow, I'm on the other side of that. I if if my child is going to commit a murder, that's not something I'm going to cover for. I mean, I, no way. That's a no. No. So you lose both your spouse and your kid. I'm going to be sad for the rest of my life knowing the truth, but I'm not going to then spend barbecues and Hanukkahs and birthdays together pretending like everything's okay because it's not okay. And how do I know they're not going to come back and shoot me when they're pissed at me? That's wrong. You shot your mother because she wouldn't let you have a 19-year-old boyfriend? That's, that's crazy. You need help. You need punishment. It might have been bigger than that. Well, what's what could be bigger than that? Well, listen, they might have been having sex. She might have been pregnant. The mom might have been a very, you know, a very. Uh, they were under a microscope. I I think that if if she was impregnated, and the dad had to deal with that afterwards, I mean, how are you going to cover that up? She didn't give birth. Who says the dad even knew? Well, even it, but. Bailey herself said her mother was allowing her to stay behind and graduate high school in that town with her grandparents. Self-centered, uh, self-serving sentence. The mother's not there to dispute it. Let's, okay, but even if the parents said... And by the way, the, the, the father, Chris, never said that's what we told her, right? I mean, it was a completely... Well, we don't know. Yeah, we don't it know. It was an uncorroborated statement, self-serving again. Okay, but even if her parents were telling her, we're going to take you away from here, we're moving away. If that's going to prompt my kid to shoot someone, I'm going to assume for the rest of their lives that they're a danger to others. That's probably true. I could not live with myself knowing that I'm unleashing that danger onto their future friends and spouses and places of business. Because then maybe they feel that such a weak motive is motive to shoot their husband or wife or boss or best friend. And that's not okay. Well, we don't know that. We're basing our opinion on these limited facts that they told us 
all of this is based on our opinion. I'm just saying that if somebody walked, if one of the kids walked in here and shot you, I would not cover up for it. All right. <laughs> okay. I, we... I, I accept that, but I'm not prepared to lose a spouse and a kid. I think dealing with one is hard enough. Dealing with two of them and then the rest of your life, you're visiting jails. I don't know. I'm not into it. I think you just got to protect your family the best you can. And that's my end of it. Fair enough. Uh, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. So last week, we talked about whether or not uh, colleges have curfews or oversight uh, for students coming home late at night. We couldn't really remember from our days if there were curfews in place or whether or not we ignored them. Uh, and I just wanted to read one of our listeners wrote in, um, and uh, it was an anonymous email. It says, even though I am several years removed from college, I had no curfew whatsoever. I came back from pledging my frat at 5 a.m. from other girls' dorm rooms the next day or from parties that ended at 2 a.m., which is the same time that bars close. Absolutely zero oversight. Love you guys. Anonymous. So I guess that answers the question of whether our kids have uh, some, some sense of oversight while they're at college and I guess the answer is no they don't they're left to their own devices but they're adults they're 18 19 20 years old I mean I really don't even consider 18 year olds adults because they're so dumb I mean I think there's a really a huge maturity gap between an 18 year old and a 21 year old I think there's a lot of maturity that happens. You could argue that they gain that maturity through their mistakes while they're at school. Um, but I just found that interesting. So I thought that I would just go ahead and, and throw that listener email out there uh, so that people know when you send your kids to college, nobody's looking to see when they come home. You know, what? it's it's either you're, you did good parenting and your kid knows better or you weren't such a great parent and your kid doesn't know any better. Oh, that's You can't throw it upon the school to make up for what you didn't do as a parent. Fair enough. And uh, let's, let's jump into our second half here. I'd like to talk about what do you do when you catch one of your kids in a lie? Okay. So one of our children found a bullet today on our property. It happens. We're out here in a heavily wooded area. I'm not saying where, and I'm not saying which one. They found a bullet. They didn't tell us they found a bullet. They pocketed that bullet. And it was a live round. Uh, I know a lot about gun safety. Ron and I both have experience with firearms. We both recognize that although it was a very old bullet, it's still a live round. When we confronted the child in question and asked them if they had found anything today, they didn't admit to it. Now, I happened to find that live round on the floor of the dining room, and I knew which kid had been out in the woods today, so I knew which kid it was right off the bat. And it wasn't until 
He was confronted with the evidence. Evidence? Holy smokes. That they admitted to the fact that, yes, they had found and pocketed this bullet. At which point they got a lecture about the safety and the dangers of handling guns and ammunition. And they were admonished. Ron took care of that lecture. I sort of sat back for that part of it. However, I strongly feel that if you catch a child in a lie, there needs to be some sort of consequence. Ron gave the lecture and sort of felt that that was as much as what was needed. So when you catch your kid in a lie, why don't you think that they deserve some sort of punishment for lying to you? The admonishment is punishment. Would you like me to also hand out a spanking? Our kids are too old to spank, and I have a lot of arguments against corporal punishment, so I certainly don't think we should be belting our kids. However, I think it would have been wholly appropriate to include in that lecture, not just about the safety and the dangers, but I think it would have wholly been appropriate for that child to have been told, you lied to me that was both dangerous and disrespectful. And as a result, X, Y, Z will happen. Maybe they get their phone taken away. Maybe there's a privilege or a game that gets taken away for the day. I'm not saying that they need to be belted. I'm not saying that they need to be punished forever or grounded. But I do think that there needs to be consequences or else they're just going to continue to hide and lie. Well, you're not saying you need consequences. What you're saying is they need more consequences than just an admonishment. Getting a lecture is not a punishment. You're embarrassed that you got caught. So let me ask you something. He also never apologized. He never said, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. That it could have been stuck in the vacuum and we moved the vacuum and it came out. Because the hose wasn't strong enough to pick up that small object. He clearly was caught in a lie, and you could tell right off the bat when you finally confronted it. You asked him several times, did you find anything outside today? No, 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 no. Oh, I found this. I found that. Never said, oh, and I found a bullet. But when we showed him the bullet, said, oh, yeah, I did find that. So could it have been moved on our shoes or the vacuum or any of the tools we were using outside? Sure. Was that the case? No. And I think we could both just scrap that off the table right now, Ron, and admit that this child brought the bullet in with them and it got dropped in the dining room. You're sounding like the cops. I don't talk to cops. <laughs> I think I'd make a great cop, by the talk, way. I don't talk to cops. I think that when we don't teach them how dangerous it is to lie to the authorities, they'll continue to think that it is okay to lie to the authorities. That's why I do defense work. NJCriminalDefense.com. Oh my God. NewJerseyCriminalDefense.com, that's me. Yes, sometimes you gotta be anti-state. I think that would be me. Fine, but I'm asking about parenting. And it could be a six-year-old who has paint on their hands and says, no, I didn't paint the wall. Or it could be your teenager who says, no, I didn't find anything today. It doesn't make a difference. If you know for a fact that they are lying to you, lying to your face about it, and you catch them in that lie, is a punishment not an appropriate consequence? 
that's an appropriate consequence. So you're saying you're going to speak to that child and enforce a punishment now? Isn't that double jeopardy? No, it's just that you got convicted of the crime and you haven't received your sentencing yet. Sentencing was at a later date. Okay, that can happen. Sentencing is always six weeks after the initial uh, plea. It happens. So? So you're not satisfied. I'm saying I'm always the bad guy in this house. And I'm always the one to enforce punishments. But I think that this was your arena. You handled the lecture. You handled the confrontation. I think the punishment has to be handed down through you. And I think that that's a fair distribution of parenting responsibilities. I think I did my share. Now it's your turn to do your share. It's 50-50. I'm not mom and dad. I'm just dad. You're right. But the majority of the time, I'm the one here with them and left to those responsibilities. I think this is an appropriate time for you to step in and say, what you did earlier was wrong. And this is what's going to happen. I don't think that should get shoveled onto me. I was not a part of this trial. But you do a very good job. Why can't I leave it I, I, <laughs> I do an excellent job punishing the kids. I'm great at saying no. I'm great at saying because I said so. And I'm a firm believer in disciplining your children. We are here to be their parents, not their friends. That being said, we want to hear from our listeners. What do you think? is an appropriate punishment? Do you think any punishment's appropriate or do you think things should just be left alone? Write to us at till death do us part podcast at gmail.com. Till death do us part podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Before we go, I just want to shout out to one of our great friends and big supporters, our good friend Peach. She has been listening to these podcasts and giving us great feedback. So we just want to say we love you and thank you. And we want all of you guys to stay stay safe, mask up, stay inside when you can. Stay six feet away. And good night, New Jersey. Wait, unless you're single and you see somebody you like, then uh, can we do like three feet? Is that appropriate? No. Six feet at all times. 2020 is not the year to find your soulmate. Hate to tell you. It's not going to happen this year, guys. Good night, everyone. Good night.